Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is going to be a little different. Okay, a lot different. You see, for me, lately life has been lifing, for lack of a better description, and when it rains, it definitely pours. But bottom line is, over the past two weeks, I have been working incessantly on my dissertation, turning in final edits so I can officially defend that dissertation this semester. Yep, your girl is finally walking across that stage come May, and you can all officially call me Dr. Turner in less than like two months. (laughs) But that also means that life got in the way for me these past couple of weeks, and I just needed a bit of a moment to catch my breath, which also means that there was no time for quality research and writing of a new chronicle. But, of course, I didn't want to leave all of you, my wonderful and dedicated listeners, without any type of new episode or content at all. So, I thought, what better time than to introduce you to a podcast that I personally listen to on a weekly basis. It's one of my all-time favorite podcasts called Military Murder. This week, my dear friend and fellow podcaster, Margot has been gracious enough to share an episode of her show, This particular episode covers the murder of a nursing student at Minot State University, Angela Wilder, who was discovered dead in her Minot, North Dakota home while her son was sleeping in the next room. So without further ado, take it away, Margot. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, True Crime Army, before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you all know that I am officially on YouTube. I'm bringing you old and new cases alike. So please head over to YouTube sometime today and subscribe to my channel at Mama Margot with a T at the end. There you will find more of the usual true crime content that I bring you via podcast. So far, you can find Sutherland Springs and Denisha's story on there, but I also dropped a YouTube exclusive on there specifically out of Fort Campbell, and it's the case of Brittany Mitchell Silvers. So if you want to hear that story, be sure to head over to my YouTube sometime today. All right, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone who continues to send in their listener suggested cases. 
because if it wasn't for that, I would have never heard about today's case. A huge shout out to my longtime fan Myrtle for researching and writing this episode. I truly appreciate you, Myrtle. Today's case takes us to chilly Minot, North Dakota. Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of Angela Wilder. Now, let's dig in. My main sources for this episode include a book by C.J. Wynn titled Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota, an episode of Dateline titled Prairie Confidential, and an article we found on KFYR-TV. In the late evening hours on Thursday, November 12, 2015, a Walmart employee named Christopher Jackson, who goes by Chris, was just getting started on his overnight shift when his phone buzzed. It was his fiance, Angela Wilder, who was home alone with their two-year-old son, Carter. Now, just so you know, Carter is a pseudonym given in the book Wilder Intentions to protect the identity of their son, who is still a juvenile. Now, all of the juveniles that I will mention today have pseudonyms, so just FYI. Angela had dropped Chris off at work and went back home with their son and had told Chris that she was afraid being home alone. Chris had previously reassured Angela that the neighborhood was super safe and that she was okay to be alone. Angela, who had two other kids with her first husband, Richie Wilder, was used to a full house of kids, three kids to be exact. But on this particular weekend, Angela was home alone with little Carter because her two other kids, Amy and Nathan, not their real names, were with their father. In any event, when Chris's phone buzzed, it was a text from Angela. She thought she could hear someone trying to jiggle the door handle in the front entryway of their house. Chris texted back that it was probably just their neighbors. Their neighbors made a lot of noise when they got in and out of their car, and their driveway was right outside the master bedroom window. Chris promised Angela that he would call and text her throughout the night. That was their routine, after all, when Chris was working his shift at Walmart. Chris called Angela just after midnight on his first break and they talked for a few minutes. Angela had just put their son to sleep and was going to study for an exam she had coming up later that day. She was a nursing student at Minot State University. At about 2.10 a.m., Chris took his lunch break, sitting in the chair of a motorized shopping cart just inside the sliding glass doors to eat his lunch, he called Angela again. She told him how exhausted she was and Chris was like, okay, get some rest and I'll call you again later during my next break. Chris took his last break at 5.08 a.m. He pulled out his phone and called Angela, but this time she didn't answer. It was weird to him because she always answered, like always, always answered. But she had told him that she was really tired when they talked during his lunch break, so he figured she fell asleep. You know, not only was she exhausted from staying up late to study, but the couple had recently found out they were expecting another baby. And morning sickness, which is really all day sickness, has started to kick in. Add that to the legal custody battle that Angela had been enduring with her ex, Richie, Chris was sure that Angela was just catching up with some Z's. When Angela failed to answer, Chris simply sent her a text that read, quote, I'm glad you're getting some rest, sweetheart. I'll see you in a few hours. Love you, end quote. Angela was due to pick Chris up after his shift was over at about 7 a.m. At 6.55 a.m., Chris sent Angela a text to make sure she was up and on her way to grab him. But Angela didn't respond to the text message. Chris thought maybe she knocked the phone off the nightstand and it was on the floor under the bed or under the bed sheet. And maybe she just couldn't hear the text, you know, like the buzzing. So he tried calling her and the phone rang and rang and rang and rang and nothing. He called again and again and again and rang and rang and rang. Still nothing. Chris tried calling her eight times, but Angela never answered. 
This was totally not like her. Chris didn't know if he was annoyed or concerned. She was supposed to be his ride home. There was usually a taxi stage in the parking lot at shift change ready to pick up people who needed a ride home. Since no one was waiting for a taxi, Chris waved it over, got in and headed home. Chris paid the driver and thought he would have some fun with Angela by tapping on the bedroom window. For sure, he thought that would make her jump and wake up. But when he did that, no one even stirred inside the house. Chris walked around the side of the house to go in through the back door and he stopped dead in his tracks. The door was wide open. They never left their door unlocked. And in the middle of November in North Dakota, there is no way that Angela would have left it open to let the freezing air blow into the house. Now, the book Wilder Intentions details Chris's account of what he saw next and the emotions that went with it. Chris says that he felt uneasy, but he approached the door anyway. As he looked at it, his heart skipped a beat. There was damage to the door. He could see several dents around the knob and lock and black scuff marks were all over the panels. The wood around the lock was splintered down the middle. And when he had left for work, the door was in perfect condition. Chris yelled inside the house for Angela and Carter, but there was no sound, nothing. No sound was coming from the house at all. Chris was terrified and he backed out to the yard to dial 911. Mind you, he had not stepped inside the house all the way. When the dispatcher answered, he frantically said, quote, my back door is kicked in and my girl ain't answering the phone. My son is inside with her and everything. I'm about to go in and see what the f is going on, end quote. The dispatcher told him to wait outside for officers and to not enter the home. Chris tried one more time to call Angela, but once again, there was no answer. Officers arrived within minutes and Chris explained to them that he came home from work to find the door wide open and that it looked like it had been kicked in. He told them that Angela and their son should be inside and he begged the officers to let him go in with them. They were like, no, 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 you stay outside. We'll be right out. As officers made their way through the kitchen and then down into the hallway, they noted that the house was clean. It was spotless. There was no sign of a struggle. The first room they entered had a crib with Carter in it and the baby was still asleep. One of the officers scooped Carter up and took him outside to Chris. They had to force entry into the other bedroom. One of the cops kicked the door down and they flipped on the light switch and stepped into the room. In comparison to the tidiness of the rest of the house, the bedroom appeared to be in disarray. The comforter was crooked on the bed and looked like it was pulled almost all the way down on the right side, but they couldn't see anyone in the bed. As the officers got closer, they noticed several pools of blood soaked into the sheets and comforter. Droplets and smudges of blood went down the side of the mattress. One of the cops said, quote, this is not good, end quote. As he walked around the corner of the bed, between the wall and the bed was the bloodied body of Angela Wilder. The officer called out her name, but there was no response. The police immediately radioed for paramedics and an ambulance to arrive. One of the paramedics went in and assessed Angela. She didn't have a pulse and she wasn't breathing. He noticed that her skin lacked color and was cool to the touch, which told him she had probably been dead for a few hours. The paramedic called the emergency department at the local hospital and spoke to the on-call doctor. The doctor agreed that Angela couldn't be revived and pronounced Angela Shannon Wilder dead at 7.38 in the morning. Outside, Chris was sitting in the back seat of Angela's car with Carter on his lap. Sergeant Dave Goodman, who would be the lead detective on this case, went over to the car and introduced himself. 
He asked Chris to come down to the station so that they could try to sort out what happened. Chris agreed, so he and Carter moved to the back seat of a patrol car to be driven to the station. The crime scene unit arrived a couple of hours later. They broke out the white hazmat suits and began processing the scene. They noticed the same things that the officers had seen when they initially made entry. The house was neat as a pin. But when they got to the master bedroom where Angela's body was found, it was a bloody mess. Based on the blood evidence that was soaked into the sheets, comforter, and pillows, they surmised that Angela's attack likely started on the bed and then that her body was dragged down to the side of the bed to the floor. It was clear that Angela fought hard to live. She had deep cuts on her thumb and index finger that indicated that she had held her hands up in an effort to shield herself from the attack, and two of her fingernails were broken off. She had been wearing a gray tank top that was pushed up underneath her breast, revealing droplets and smudges of blood on her stomach. The weirdest thing was that her underwear had a large blood stain on it that was in the shape of a knife. It was as if the perpetrator had used her underwear to wipe both sides of the knife off. Angela's hair was soaked with blood and matted up in the carpet. Cuts, slices, and gashes covered her chest and left shoulder. She had more cuts on her chin and face, and when they turned her over, there were stab wounds on her right upper back and shoulder. They also saw more cuts and slices around her ear and one large cut on her neck that gaped open. Minot had some crime, but they didn't see a lot of murders, especially murders of young mothers who were asleep in their beds. Police were perplexed. This was a quiet neighborhood. Their house was next to a church and across the street from an elementary school, an elementary school where Angela's oldest daughter, Amy, attended. Angela Shannon Small was born on September 30th, 1985 to parents Tony and Linda. She had a big sister named Crystal who was only 13 months older than she was. Tony and Linda both served in the military. They moved a few times before they divorced a year after Angela was born in 1986. Linda chose to raise her daughters alone, completely severing ties with Tony. She stayed single for two years before meeting Leon Russ Hollenbach in 88. They did it for a few years until they got married in the mid-90s. The family moved to Phoenix City, Alabama, which is about 10 miles from Fort Benning, Georgia. They tried different churches, but nothing ever fit quite right until they joined the Mormon church. Crystal and Angela loved their new church, and they were excited to have lots of activities to participate in. Crystal had to be held back one grade, so the girls ended up in the same grade together. They were best friends and totally inseparable all the way through graduation. They even had a secret language only the two of them understood. Both girls followed the rules of the Mormon church and they didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. They went on double dates with boys from the church, but Angela was super picky about the boys she dated. Angela was super motivated. She played saxophone in the marching band, she was always on the honor roll, and she was in the ROTC program in high school. Any boy she dated had to be as hard-charging as she was. But she had one exception, a boy named Chris Jackson. Yes, the same Chris she was engaged to when she was murdered. Chris Jackson was cute and shy and was totally smitten with Angela. She developed a crush on him as well, and they started dating exclusively. Angela literally excelled at everything she did, but Chris had a hard time getting his ducks in a row. Angela would get frustrated and she would break up with Chris, but then they would get back together. And this on again, off again relationship went on through middle school and high school until eventually Angela went off to college and she officially broke things off. 
Angela's dream out of high school was to become a pediatrician and work with terminally ill children. Through her hard work, she was granted a full scholarship from the Army to attend the University of South Alabama to attend medical school. In 2004, Angela met a man named Daniel Kay, a pseudonym given in the book to protect his privacy, and she started dating him. She soon found out she was pregnant. Angela was excited to become a mother, but due to her pregnancy, the Army pulled her scholarship. She couldn't afford to pay for college on her own, so she dropped out, hopeful that one day she would get back into school and pursue a nursing degree. Angela and Daniel eventually got married. A few weeks later, in September of 2004, her oldest daughter, Amy, was born. The marriage, though, wasn't a good one. Angela loved being a mom, but Daniel didn't show any interest in their daughter. To make matters worse, there were rumors of infidelity and that he was possibly abusing Angela physically. After two years of marriage, they filed for divorce and Angela requested full custody of Amy. Daniel made it easy on Angela and he relinquished all of his parental rights. After the divorce, Angela moved back to Phoenix City and started rebuilding her life. She started taking classes to become a nurse. She rejoined the Mormon church and she rekindled a friendship that she had with a young man she knew from church. His name was Richie Edwin Wilder Jr. Richie's backstory isn't talked a lot about in the book or even in the documentary except to say that he came from a broken home. His parents, Geneva and Richie Sr., divorced when he was five. He and his two brothers spent their childhood bouncing back and forth between their parents' houses. Back in Phoenix City, Angela briefly reconnected with Chris Jackson, but she was disappointed to learn that he never graduated from high school and still lived in his mom's basement. Angela still had feelings for Chris all these years later, but he just didn't have his life together. So with that, Angela gave Richie from church a shot. Richie treated Angela's daughter, Amy, like she was his own, very reminiscent of how Russ, Angela's stepfather, took care of her and Crystal when they were little. Angela's relationship with Richie moved pretty quickly, and they announced that they would be getting married soon. They got married in 2009, and with the marriage, Richie formally adopted Amy, who was five at the time. In 2010, Richie and Angela announced that Richie was going to join da-da, the Air Force. He went to basic training, completed tech school, and they moved to Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. This forced Angela to uproot her life to follow Richie. She left her family, she left college again, and she left her job. Angela was from a military family, so she knew that life was going to be vastly different. But there was also so many benefits to their new life and lifestyle that outweighed the negatives. Once at Minot, they moved on base and Angela got a job working at the commissary on base. Now, the commissary is also known as the grocery store on base, for those of you who might not know. The Wilders also found out that Angela was pregnant with their second child, due in the spring of 2011. In the book, Wilder Intentions, there were indications of problems in the marriage during this time frame. But listen, what marriage is perfect anyway? Angela told her sister Crystal, however, that Richie wasn't the sweet and charming guy she once knew. According to Crystal, Richie had become disconnected, demanding, and even abusive towards Angela. For instance, they had joined a Mormon church when they got to Minot, but Richie would only allow Angela to attend church services if she wore something that he pre-approved. He would cruelly compare her dresses and hair to other women and tell her that she wasn't good enough to be seen with which honestly, that makes me so sad as a woman and as a person just to hear. In March of 2011, Angela gave birth to their son, Nathan. And as sometimes happens, the birth of a child seems to rekindle something in a marriage. Almost like Nathan's birth brought Richie joy again, something he seemed to be lacking before. 
Papa, that happiness was short-lived. By June, Richie was being physically abusive with Angela. He would prevent her from leaving rooms by putting her in a chokehold. He would grab her by the neck and hold her up against the wall. And he even told her once that he could easily kill her. Richie filed for divorce in October of 2011. In the divorce paperwork, he claimed that Angela had started beating their daughter, Amy, shortly after they got married. He alleged the abuse began in February of 2009. According to Richie, Angela would yell at Amy while punching and hitting her. And listen, not only did Richie make this child abuse report in his divorce paperwork, but he even reported this alleged abuse to his first sergeant. Of course, because the first sergeant was a mandatory reporter, the alleged abuse had to be investigated. That was a hard situation to be in for Angela. She tried to reach out to Richie's chain of command to talk, but it seemed like they were taking Richie's side. But then, out of the blue, Richie withdrew the divorce paperwork and Angela moved back in with him. But not before she agreed to attend a nurturing program that was supposed to help with both anger management issues and taught healthy parenting skills. Richie made her agree to additional counseling and that she needed to take medication. He wanted her to take medication, I guess, specifically for anger issues. But then, not even a month after they got back together in December of 2011, Richie reported that Angela assaulted him. So, according to him, in self-defense, he placed her in a chokehold. You see, what had happened was Angela suspected Richie was cheating on her. She found a phone that wasn't Richie's regular phone. He claimed he got it to build his credit. Angela somehow convinced Richie to show her what was on the phone. He showed her pictures of a woman she recognized as an old girlfriend of his from Alabama named Sarah. Now, the messages were full of expressions of love and they were kind of of a sexual nature. Richie told his wife, though, that he was just leading Sarah along to get back at her for putting him in debt and giving him STDs. <laughs> what is going on here? But then on December 22nd, a call came into that phone from a flower shop wanting to confirm a flower delivery to Sarah. Richie told Angela that he was still trying to get Sarah to fall in love with him for revenge. After this, Richie filed for divorce again. This time, he claimed that Angela was refusing to take her medication, refusing to go to counseling and being violent towards him. This go around, Angela wasn't taking this one sitting down. She filed her own report countering everything he was trying to accuse her of and saying that he was trying to twist what he was doing into accusations against her. Oy vey, divorce really sucks. So Richie wrote in his affidavit that Angela was so mad about his second phone and his conversations with Sarah that she wanted to slap him. So he agreed to let her slap him. He said she got on top of him on the bed and put a pillow over his head, then started to pummel him with her fist. Mind you, there's a pillow in between them. He thought that she might suffocate him. So he put her in a chokehold and she eventually passed out. Oh boy. Angela's version was that she was so mad that she wanted to slap him. But after slapping him lightly three times, she felt bad and stopped. She said that he then flipped her over because remember, she was on top of him. Then he punched her in the face and slammed her head into the floor repeatedly. She claimed that she passed out to the point where she peed her pants. And then when she went to the bathroom to clean herself up, she says she took pictures of the bruises. So on December 26, according to Richie, Angela had threatened to take the kids away from him. 
He said he tried to remedy the situation by hugging her. Mind you, she's probably pissed at this point. He says he hugged her. Meanwhile, she kept pushing him away. Then he said she lunged at him, giving him no choice but to put her in a chokehold again. He said she tried to claw his face and elbow him, so he squeezed harder and harder until she passed out. Richie then claims that he attempted to wake Angela back up, but when she didn't respond to him shaking her, he slapped her across the face until she came to. Oh boy. Supposedly, he offered to call her an ambulance, but she refused, saying it was just an accident. Wait a minute. She said it was just an accident? Okay, sure, Richie. After filing for the divorce the second time, Richie told his supervisor about the physical fights he and Angela got into. The supervisor went straight to the first sergeant who knew about the couple's troubles already. When Richie had filed for divorce in October, the first sergeant had issued a no-contact order because he thought Angela was a problem. This time, since there was known violence between both adults in the house, the first sergeant called social services. The determination was made that Amy and Nathan, the two kids, should be removed from the care of both parents. Richie was ordered to report to the dorms on base and Angela was allowed to stay in her house on the insulation, but the kids couldn't stay with her. The first sergeant and his wife actually volunteered to take the children for a few months, I guess. The Air Force held Richie accountable for his actions, and they eventually court-martialed him for domestic violence with two counts of assault. He was found guilty, he was reduced in rank, and given 60 days hard labor without confinement. After his court-martial, Richie, it appears, was administratively discharged from the Air Force under a general discharge. It should be noted that Angela was also barred from the installation, which meant she could no longer work at the commissary. By May of 2012, the Wilders were divorced and custody was determined. They would each have a week with Amy and Nathan exchanging the kids on Sundays at 1 p.m. However, they continued to argue over the family possessions. It got so vile that they were ordered by the court to only communicate through email and they could only discuss the kids. For a year, Angela begged the courts to let her move back to Alabama so that she could be closer to her support system. She drew up proposals that provided Richie with fair access to the kids, but Richie refused to let the kids go with her, so the court denied her request. Ultimately, Angela was stuck in North Dakota. By the end of 2013, both Richie and Angela had moved on in new relationships. Angela rekindled a romance with her high school boyfriend, Chris Jackson. They eventually got engaged and had their son Carter together. Richie had met and married a school teacher named Cynthia Louise Becker, who went by Cindy. Together, they had a baby daughter named Beth. This brings us to 2015. Angela was found murdered in her home. Chris, Angela's fiance, is in a police interrogation room and he's walking the police through that specific day. Then Chris started to tell police Angela's backstory and her relationship with Richie and the kids and the legal battle. Chris admitted that at first he blamed both parties, Angela and Richie, they were both being contentious. But the more and more that time went by, Chris realized that Richie was manipulative and conniving. Richie tried to control Angela the same way he did throughout their marriage. In fact, when it came time to exchange the kids on weekends, Chris began to accompany Angela and eventually he just took over the drop-off duty completely because that eliminated any contact between Angela and Richie. As detectives heard more and more about this Richie character, 
they realized they needed to go interview him. So detectives went to Richie's house and told him that his ex-wife was dead. Richie told them that he already knew. He said his wife, Cindy, had seen the police cars in yellow tape around Angela's house when she was dropping his oldest daughter, Amy, off at the school, which was right across the street from Angela's house. Detectives thought that was a weird comment because cop cars and yellow tape don't necessarily equate to a death. But while they chatted with Richie, they noticed a fresh scratch on his face. Richie didn't show any emotion when detectives asked him to come to the station and they allowed him to drive himself. During this time frame, they also got warrants to impound Richie's and Cindy's cars. They had two separate cars. Now, nothing of note was found in Richie's car and Cindy's car was spotless, like it had just been detailed spotless. However, technicians were able to find one small stain on the front passenger side door on the panel that was reddish brown. They swabbed the stain for later analysis. During the interrogation, Richie waived his Miranda rights. Richie's answers came so fast that the detectives couldn't understand what he was saying. He bounced his knees and kept sliding in and out of his shoes. In between his speed talking, he would pause and take in huge gulps of air. He kept ending his sentences with, does that make sense? He told detectives that Angela tried to manipulate their daughter. And then Richie downplayed his entire court-martial for domestic violence. He downplayed the fact that he was kicked out of the Air Force. He just downright tried to play the victim card during his interview. When the detectives asked him about the scratch on his face, he told them that it was from Nathan, his kid, because he tries to pretend he's a tiger. Now, Richie scrambled for an alibi. He told detectives that he was with his kids the day before. And when Cindy came home from work, he went to the hospital where he worked as a CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant. When he got off work, he came home, went to bed and then woke up in the morning. The cops had one last question for Richie before they let him go. Would his DNA show up anywhere on Angela's body? And Richie was like, no, it couldn't. It couldn't because I was not at her house. Detectives pressed like, OK, so your DNA is not going to show up under her fingernails. And Richie was like, no, no, I told you I've never been to her house. The cops asked Richie for the clothes he was wearing and a DNA sample before he left, which he agreed to. They also took pictures of the fresh scratch on his face. And then Richie left. Later that evening, detectives went to Richie and Cindy's apartment to perform a search. Cindy gave them permission to search the house. There were items seized and there were tons of pictures taken. They asked Richie if he was willing to take a polygraph and he was like, "Okay, I will, but it's too late tonight, maybe tomorrow. But of course, the next day was Saturday, November 14th. And as often happens, he was no longer willing to give a polygraph. On November 15th, detectives interviewed Richie's co-workers at the hospital and everyone said he was a great co-worker and that the patients loved him. However. Several of them said, oh, listen here, police. We all know that Richie's married, but we also know he's sleeping around with at least two of his female co-workers. One of them actually is trying to get pregnant with his baby. What the what? Oh, wait, this story gets crazier. So detectives rolled out to talk to that co-worker, the one who was trying to get pregnant. Her name is Jennifer, and she admitted she had been having an affair with Richie for almost a year. Richie had told Jennifer that Cindy, his wife, knew all about the affair. And in fact, she was OK with it because they were planning on getting a divorce 
because they were better off as friends. Uh-huh. Sure. Jennifer, turns out, was also married, but she was estranged from her husband for several months, according to the book Wilder Intentions. And she and Richie were apartment hunting together. Now, the other other woman was a phlebotomist named Joanne. Apparently, Jennifer, the first other woman, wasn't aware of Richie and Joanne's sexual relationship. And Joanne, she didn't want anything other than sex from Richie, so she really didn't give a crap who he was with. But wait, there's more. Richie's cell phone records delivered information on yet another other woman. So she was the other, other, other woman. And her name was Danielle. And she was a former girlfriend who lived out of state. Now, they hadn't seen each other, but they were planning a trip to Vegas together over Christmas. Now, wait a damn minute, True Crime Army. How? Just honestly, answer me this. How? How do people have the energy to keep up with this many affairs? Anyway, not long after Angela was killed, Richie's stellar record at the hospital was shattered when he violently shoved an elderly patient into a wall at work, claiming that it was all because the detectives were harassing him. Of course, the hospital immediately fired him. Five weeks went by with detectives relentlessly seeking information about Angela's murder from the plethora of material witnesses and all of the leads led back to Richie but they didn't have enough evidence for an arrest, at least not yet. Eventually, the DNA swab from the spot of blood found in Cindy's car came back on November 11th, and the DNA belonged to Angela. Now, why would Angela's blood be in Cindy's car? Richie had told them that Angela had never been in his or Cindy's cars. Well, on December 17th, detectives got another call from the state forensics lab. The result of the DNA that was scraped from under Angela's fingernails was back, and it belonged to Richie. On December 18th, while working out at the gym, Richie was arrested. This time, he refused to talk, and he was assigned a public defender named Carrie R., who just happened to be a former Air Force JAG. Months after Richie's arrest in March of 2016, his attorney notified police that Richie was ready to talk. And boy, oh boy, did he talk. A meeting was set up with Richie, detectives, Richie's attorney, and the county deputy's state attorney, Kelly Dillon. The defense attorney, Carrie R., said that there may have been a plan in place to murder Angela and that Richie would be interested in a plea deal. Kelly Dillon wasn't falling for any of this, and she wasn't going to discuss a deal at all until any information that Richie provided was verified. So with that, Richie started to tell a tale. And this is his version of events. And boy, what a story it is. He claimed that Chris, mind you, Chris is Angela's fiance. He claimed that Chris suspected Angela of cheating. Richie said Chris wanted to catch Angela in the act so he and Richie could win sole custody of each of their kids. According to Richie, Chris had laid out his plan one day when they were at the school exchanging the kids. Chris supposedly gave Richie pictures of Chris, Angela, Amy, and Nathan on vacation out of state. Now, taking the kids out of state without permission was a violation of the court order. And per Richie's confession or his statement to the police, Chris wanted to make sure that Angela lost custody of the kids. So Richie continues with his story. Now, fast forward a few days after this supposed meeting, and Richie said that he picked Chris up at Walmart at 2.15 in the morning. 
Chris told him that he had to be back at work by 3 a.m. They drove to Angela and Chris's house, entering with Chris's key and creeping through the house to the master bedroom where Angela was surely going to be found in bed with another man. According to Richie, he said when they went down to the bedroom and they looked in, it looked like there were two people in bed. But when he pulled the covers back, he found Angela in bed with a body pillow. Richie said that at this point, he was thinking that Chris did all of this to try to make Richie jealous and spark a reaction out of him. So Richie emotionally told detectives that at this point, Chris flew into a fit of rage. He could see Chris's arm pumping up and down in a stabbing motion and that blood was flying everywhere. Richie recalled that as Chris was stabbing Angela, Angela was fighting back, but that Chris pulled her from the bed and onto the floor, still stabbing her. Somewhere in the fray, Richie says he ran to Angela's side and attempted to find her pulse. He said that she reached up at that point and scratched his face during a convulsion. He said he grabbed her hands and held them while she looked up into his face and simply said, I love you. But wait, Richie wasn't done telling his story yet. Despite his intervention and this exchange of I love you, which, by the way, is in a very small space between the bed and the window, he says that Chris continued to stab at Angela. Now, Richie didn't elaborate on much else, but said that he drove Chris back to Walmart. He said Chris was in the passenger seat. So obviously that's how Angela's blood got on the passenger side of the car. Richie mentioned that he had to drive with his wrists because his hands were covered in blood from checking for a pulse and holding Angela's hands. Eventually, he says he dropped Chris off at 2.45 a.m., just 30 minutes after he had picked him up and left. Of course, as investigators hear this, they are stunned. At some point, the detectives had to ask some questions. I'm glad they did because I have so many questions at this point. So the detectives wanted to know, so if Chris was all bloodied up after stabbing Angela, did he change clothes before you took him back to Walmart? Crickets. Richie had a blank stare. No response. Detectives were like, okay, so riddle us this. What did you and Chris talk about during the four mile drive after the murder? Richie had an answer for that. According to him, Chris threatened to kill his wife and daughter if he said a word to anyone which is why Richie claimed that he didn't mention this version of events earlier. It's around this time that detectives have heard enough. They let Richie know that they know Chris didn't leave Walmart on the night of November 13th. Richie was like, no, 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 he did because I was with him. And I guess Richie didn't know that Walmart has security cameras everywhere and not just run-of-the-mill cameras that rarely work. Walmart has excellent cameras with high resolution and they're all over the inside and outside of the store. You see, detectives had already checked Chris's alibi and had seen him on surveillance. They had seen him working. They had seen every single time he called Angela on his breaks. And they saw him sitting in a motorized cart by the front entrance of the store, eating his lunch and talking to Angela. When detectives gave Richie this information, Richie's lawyer, Carrie R., can be heard telling Richie that, you know, mm, you need to stop talking now. Richie then turned to detectives and was like, I don't want to talk anymore. Richie came up with a lot of different versions of events of what happened to Angela. One was that Chris was behind everything and planned the murder. 
Another was that Chris hired two hitmen to kill Angela. And as it turned out, one of these supposed hitmen was Richie's cellmate, a guy named Paul Madriles. Richie claimed that Paul confessed to killing Angela and even signed a four page confession. Except Paul didn't write this confession, nor did he sign it. Every time Richie came up with a new scheme, the inmates would talk among themselves and eventually the information got back to the jail staff and to the detectives who were investigating the case. In late August of 2016, after being locked up for months, Richie had enough of jail life. Corrections officers saw on the closed circuit cameras that Richie was messing around with something in his cell near the window, and they went down to check it out. Richie, it turns out, had made a spear out of a wooden broomstick and attached a sharp piece of metal to the end of it. What the correction officers had seen on surveillance video was Richie chipping away at his windowsill, Shawshank Redemption style. Richie had even tied together several bedsheets to make a rope and hid them under his mattress so he could shimmy down the outside once he broke out. Due to everything that they found in this evidence, Richie was charged with a Class C felony of escape and he ultimately pled guilty. Let's just say after this escape fiasco, they had to keep an extra eye on Richie Wilder. Richie's trial started in December of 2016, about four months after his escape attempt and a little more than a year since Angela had been brutally murdered in her bed. The deputy state attorney, Kelly Dillon, made no mistake that there would be no plea deals for Richie in this case. If there had been some kind of evidence found that proved any of his wild stories, it might have been considered, but not one shred of evidence supported his claims. The trial got underway on Friday, December 13th, 2016, in front of Judge Gary Lee. I don't know if that was intentional, but the irony that Angela was killed on a Friday the 13th is not lost on me. Kelly Dillon gave the prosecution's opening statement, outlining the events of November 13th, 2015. And she talked about how Christopher Jackson eventually found his wife's bloodied body on the floor of their bedroom. She let the jury know that there would be information that would show that Richie killed his ex-wife, but she didn't elaborate on what the evidence would be. The defense attorney, Carrie R., presented his opening statement, but he didn't really say much except to tell them, like, listen, this isn't television. Please don't get lost with the CSI effect. Don't be overcome by the pictures that are going to show lots of shock and awe. Like, just keep an open mind is what he said. But that's what all defense attorneys say. One of the main witnesses for the prosecution was Chris Jackson. He was called to the stand where Kelly Dillon gently guided him through the events of the evening of November 12th through the morning of the 13th. While he was on the stand, Chris broke down and was given a 20 minute recess by the judge to compose himself. The prosecutor took a moment to ask Chris about how he felt about his growing family with Angela. Now, this was the first time the jury had heard that Angela was pregnant when she was murdered. Chris had to suffer through two rounds of cross-examination where the defense attorney did his best to paint Chris and Angela's relationship as contentious, abusive, and full of infidelities. Thankfully, the prosecutor followed up both rounds of cross-examinations with clarifying questions that let the jury know that the defense was wrong in his line of questioning. One after another, crime scene technicians and police officers took the stand giving their expert testimony and what they had seen and describing the evidence they collected. This included pictures of the murder scene showing the gruesome amount of blood all over the place, on the bed, on the walls, on the carpet. Next up was the medical examiner who had performed Angela's autopsy. 
He presented pictures of the 44 stab wounds that she suffered, showing that she had been cut and stabbed at least 13 times on her face, neck, and chin. Several of the wounds would have been fatal on their own. Together, they were devastating. Angela had defensive wounds on her arms and fingers, indicating that she had put up her arms in an attempt to protect herself. Two separate DNA lab experts testified that the material gathered from under Angela's fingernails definitively belonged to Richie. And that spot of blood found in Richie and Cindy's car? Yes, it belonged to Angela. The jury knew that Angela had held her arms up in self-defense, but now they heard how she had clawed at her attacker. Irrefutable proof that Richie had been in the room the night that Angela had been killed. With that, the first day of testimony ended. The trial started back up on Monday with one of the detectives who was lead on the case. At this point, the prosecutor presented the full video of Richie's initial interview with police. The detectives pointedly asked if Richie's DNA would be found anywhere on Angela's body, to which Richie answered, no, that would be simply impossible. Well, now he seemed like a liar. The prosecutor also introduced the second interview where Richie told detectives an unbelievable story about how he picked up Chris from Walmart the night of the murder. On the tape, at the end of Richie's long lie, the detectives let him know that without a shred of a doubt, Chris had never left Walmart that night. Liar, liar, pants on fire. The prosecutor showed the jury a video from the school where Chris had supposedly given Richie the pictures of, you know, the out-of-state vacation. They showed clearly that the two men barely had a few seconds of interaction outside of Chris handing Nathan off to Richie after Amy got out of class. Hardly the long conversation that Richie said he had with Chris, while Chris supposedly told him about the big plan to murder Angela. But wait, there's more. The pictures that Richie tried to pass off as coming from Chris, they were printed after Angela died. Yes, the date, November 19th. That date was stamped on the back of the pictures. And remember, she was murdered on November 13th. Detectives had a field day with that little nugget of information. At this point, the defense attorney was not going to be able to dig his client out of this massive hole. Kelly Dillon next presented a recorded call between Richie and his wife, Cindy, while Richie was in jail. Now, during the conversation, they discussed the DNA evidence that had been found in their car and how outraged they were that it was there. Angela had never ridden in their car. Okay, so that means that her DNA got in the car by transfer from someone else, like, I don't know, by the person who killed her. Cindy glared at the back of Richie's head, making it obvious that she was extremely displeased with how things were going. The last witness at trial was one of Richie's cellmates from jail. His name was Jeremiah Tallman. He testified that Richie told him in detail how he parked his car in the church parking lot next to Chris and Angela's house, how he kicked in the door. He even told him the route he took through the house, how he stabbed Angela to death, then how he threw the knife away and tossed his clothes in a dumpster near his apartment. During direct examination, Kelly Dillon, you know, she wondered, why would Richie tell you this? You were just his cellmate in jail. And so the cellmate, Talman, he said that he told Richie about how he had been accused of murder in 2010, but was ultimately acquitted because it had been in self-defense. Now, Richie wanted to know all about how to navigate the legal system, 
And of course, he couldn't let the man tell his story without one-upping him by bragging about Angela's murder, including, by the way, he bragged about how he knew she was pregnant when he murdered her. At the end of Jeremiah Tallman's testimony, the prosecution rested and the defense did not present any evidence as, you know, at the end of the day, it's not their burden. At 10.33 a.m. on December 16th, the jury began their deliberations. At 11.45 a.m., the bailiff notified the judge that the jury had reached their decision. Um, excuse me, what? Is that even enough time to sit in the chair and give formal introductions? Anyway, by 12.04 p.m., the jury was back in the courtroom with their verdict. Kelly Dillon told Dateline that she had juries on simple theft cases that took longer than the jury did in Richie's case. The court clerk read the verdict, quote, We the jury duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action do find the defendant Richie Edwin Wilder Jr. guilty of the crime of murder. Sentencing would come at a later date. But as he was escorted out of the courtroom with shackled hands and feet, Richie reached up with his hand and blew Cindy a kiss. Cindy stood in front of the cameras outside of the courtroom and sobbed that her husband was a good man and a good husband and that she stood by him. Here's the thing. Did you wonder where Richie and Angela's kids, Amy and Nathan, have been the whole time that Richie's been in jail? Well, they've been with Cindy. She told the media that she was all they had now. She went on to say that they've been with her for a year and they'd be staying with her. The sentencing hearing took place in May of 2017. Richie also pled guilty to the charge of attempted escape from his window chiseling incident at the jail in 2016. And so anyway, Judge Lee had two choices for sentencing Richie, life with the possibility of parole or life without the possibility of parole. The judge carefully explained his reasoning for the decision he eventually came to. It was his belief that Richie had stalked Angela's house to see when Chris would be gone to work and, like a coward, had broken in and attacked her while she was most vulnerable in her bed asleep. Judge Lee ultimately decided to sentence Richie to life without the possibility of parole. Judge Lee, though, wasn't done yet. He also revoked Richie's parental rights, ordering that he was to have no contact with Amy and Nathan whatsoever. This ruling wasn't requested by the prosecution. Judge Lee just kind of added that on his own volition. So it's not surprising to learn that the decision to revoke Richie's parental rights was overturned by the North Dakota Supreme Court in 2018. They ruled that it was an overreach by the court because no one had asked that an order be placed on behalf of the children. Later that year, Richie was moved to the United States Penitentiary in Atwater, California, where he remains until today. So, while you might think that this story ends here, you are very, very wrong. There is still so much more that needs to be told about Richie's accomplice. Oh yeah, yeah, Richie had an accomplice. But you'll get those details next time on Military Murder. I am so sorry to leave you with another two-parter, but this part was getting way too long and it was so complicated to introduce a different character into today's story. If you're a patron or if you subscribe to Apple Premium, you will have access to part two either right away or within a day or two of part one being released. Everyone else, 
Part two will come out during the next scheduled release. All right, before you go, don't forget to check out my new YouTube channel at Mama Margo, where you can find more stories and also you can find stories with pictures of cases I've already covered here. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode was written and researched by Myrtle. Executive produced by Bob, Jen, Tina, Falcon 13, Nicole, and Alicia. The show's newest associate producers are Joelise, Samantha, Aaron, Julia, and Kimberly. The show's newest assistant producers are Tema, Once Upon a Crime podcast, Barbie, and Sunsa Ray. To everyone who supports the show in one way or another, either via Patreon, Apple Premium, or just by listening, I love your faces and I appreciate your support more than you'll ever know. The theme song was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this military murder story next time. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of this very special crossover episode with Military Murder. I truly hope you enjoyed the show, and maybe you even found a new podcast to add to your listening rotation, hmm? (laughs) As you know, this was part one of Angela Wilder's story, so if you want to hear part two, go find Military Murder wherever you listen to your podcasts to hear the rest of the story. I promise you won't want to miss part two. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R. Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.